0: Welcome to Bible and Bourbon with Pastor Ben. Today we're going to be covering Jonah chapter 3. It's a blessing to be with you here today wherever you might be, whether you are at your home with a nice glass of bourbon, in your car stuck in traffic, at work, or anywhere else. I invite you to become just as relaxed as you would be if you had a glass of your favorite libation in front of you as we discuss the book of Jonah today. But before we start, I would like you to keep one of our listeners, Mary, in your prayers. Her family is having some difficulties as her husband is in between jobs and is the primary earner in her home. So please keep her and her husband in your prayers so that he can find a job soon. Also, I would like to address some of the emails I got last week. I know that the audio quality may not have been as good as it was in previous episodes. No, my microphone was not broken, but in fact, I had a bit of a cold. I tried to edit out as many of the sneezes or coughs as I could, but sometimes that led to the audio quality seeming a bit fractured. I'm feeling better now, and hopefully the audio quality will be better in this episode. So now, let's start our study with a prayer. Loving God, we thank you for allowing us to listen to this study to learn about scripture, and to learn a little bit more about the prophet Jonah. Allow us to learn some of the lessons that you taught Jonah and that you still teach us. Allow us to hold these words not just in our minds, but also in our hearts. We pray that this may not be the best part of our day, but instead just a building block to something better to come. Amen. Now, let me grab my glass and let's get started. Last week, we discussed Jonah's prayer and the belly of the whale or big fish. We discussed how, in many ways, this prayer can be seen as foreshadowing the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And after this prayer, we saw Jonah vomit it by the command of God to dry land. And this is where our scripture begins for today. Jonah, chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. Jonah chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins with a verse that is very similar to the very beginning verse in the book of Jonah. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. The very first verse in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. The verse that starts chapter 3 is a very clear call back to that first verse in chapter 1. In fact, it's just a repeat of the same message that God gave Jonah originally. I have a son, and I tell him to sit down sometimes, and well, sometimes he doesn't sit down. In fact, he's under one year old, so he often doesn't sit down because he doesn't really know English. But sometimes, when I repeat it, again, with the exact same phrasing and the exact same tone, he understands, and he does, in fact, sit down. In many ways, this is God's way of treating Jonah as if he's a child. God's saying, Jonah, I told you this once, but I'm going to repeat it again, so hopefully it sinks in. Obviously, God was not happy that Jonah tried to run. And this chapter 3 is seen as a reset. Chapter 3 starts the same way as chapter 1, because Jonah is restarting his mission. And luckily, Jonah does obey. We hear that Jonah went to the city of Nineveh. Then, we get this very interesting description of the city of Nineveh. We are told it's a very important city, which is correct. In fact, very well, it could have been politically the most important city of all of the Middle East during the time period. Jerusalem was an important city, but it was important for religious reasons. It wasn't very politically important outside of Judah. To describe its importance, the biblical author tells us that it would require three days to visit. And this is an interesting way to describe a city in general, but especially interesting for Nineveh because it wasn't true. Cities back in the time of Jonah were much smaller than they are today. The Bible tells us that the great city of Nineveh had roughly 120,000 people. I live in Kentucky, by no means one of the largest or most urbanized states. But even here in Kentucky, there are two cities with populations at least double that of Nineveh. And either of the two cities, Louisville or Lexington, could be walked through in much less than three days. To run a marathon in the city of Louisville, the largest city in Kentucky, you have to run a full loop around the city almost, and a marathon takes much less than a day. While it's hard for us to get an actual size of the footprint of the ancient city of Nineveh, We can estimate that at its most, it was maybe three miles. And it doesn't take three days to walk three miles. Now, some people have made the case that they weren't referring only to the city of Nineveh. But maybe they were referring to clusters of population centers around the city. That maybe there were different outposts that people would consider as part of the city of Nineveh, even though they really weren't part of the city. Which could be true, but I don't really think that's the way the description was intended to be taken, because I don't think the three days was meant to show the size of the city as much as it was to lead into the next sentence. Our scripture says, On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. We only hear about the first day we don't hear about those other two days that were required to visit the city of Nineveh. Jonah comes in on that very first day and doesn't do anything else for the other two, according to our scripture. If it takes three days to visit the city, he only works on one, and the next two are empty. The three-day marker was a way for us to know that Jonah didn't put in the extra two days required for the city. He did a third of his job and nothing more. Yet, against his best efforts, his mission was successful, and the message is driven home by those short words, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is often how Jonah's proclamation is translated for us in English, but in Hebrew it's even shorter. It's only five words long in the original Hebrew. In our very first episode, we talked about how much longer the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the other prophets were compared to Jonah. And in part, it's because Jeremiah and Isaiah spend a lot of time proclaiming God's message. Each of them has multiple periods of long and intense dialogue proclaiming God's message to the people that they are told to preach to. Jeremiah and Isaiah went to make sure that every detail of God's message got across to the people they were sent as messengers to. Jonah seems like he just wants to do the bare minimum. He was sent to proclaim God's judgment, so he proclaimed God's judgment, and nothing more. It just brings home the fact that Jonah didn't want his mission to be a success. He hoped that it would fail. Jonah probably would have tried to run if he didn't think that God would just send another fish for him. He didn't want Nineveh to repent. He wanted them to be destroyed. But even though he only goes into the small section, maybe a third of the city, and says this short five-word proclamation, the Ninevites believed in God. By word count, he is by far the most efficient preacher in the entire Bible. He is able to convert an entire city of roughly 120,000 people and their animals by saying five words. Immediately, the people declared a fast and put sackcloths on from greatest to least. Fasting back then as it is today was a way to show repentance. The same is true with putting on a sackcloth. When you wear fancy clothes, you show pride in yourself. You feel good when you have your best suit or dress on. But putting on a sackcloth makes you feel humbled, not prideful. The people of Nineveh were showing their humility to God. They were showing with their actions, not just their words, that they were submitting to God. We also hear that the Assyrian king took off his royal robes and covered himself in a sackcloth. The Assyrian king during this time was politically the most powerful man in the Middle East, if not the world. The Assyrian Empire was the largest empire in the area, and the king was the most important person in that empire. As earthly power comes, he had probably never met a man that had as much power as he currently had. His royal robes would have been incredibly opulent, not just to show the dignity and respect and power that he possessed as a person, but also the power and dignity of his empire and city, that great city of Nineveh. When he throws away his royal robes and replaces them with sackcloth, he is not just humbling himself, but he is humbling the entire city, the whole empire, with his acts. He is saying that he and his city are here and ready to repent. And after the king places himself in a sackcloth, we get this decree that is done not only by the king, but also by the noble men of the land, that every man or beast herd or flock should fast, not eat anything, and be covered in sackcloths. I'd love to see a farmer in the area trying to put a sackcloth on the back of his hungry bull. It was very unique for an act of repentance to include animals, because animals by their very nature aren't sinful. But I think it's included as a hyperbole to show how true this conversion was. The people of Nineveh were so moved by these five words of Jonah that they were willing to convince their animals to be humbled if it helped them repent of their ways. In this decree, we get another very telling moment from the king and his nobles. They say, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. In those five words... Jonah never tells the Ninevites that if they repent, they would be saved. In fact, his proclamation was in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned, with the Hebrew word for overturned being the exact same word in Hebrew that was used to describe the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't offer them any sort of respite. It's clear from his message that in 40 days, they will be destroyed, and there's seemingly nothing they can do about it. And even though they heard this fairly blunt message that offered no grace, they thought that maybe God would be moved, even though Jonah didn't tell them so. And they were right. Our final verse tells us that God saw that they had turned from their evil ways and looked on them with compassion and did not destroy the city of Nineveh. All of their people, their nobles, their kings, and even that bull who put on a sackcloth were all saved. I'm sure you can see the similarities between the conversion of the Ninevites and that of the sailors. First, Jonah didn't really do anything. We know that Jonah was barely in the city, just a third of the way in when he uttered those five short words, words that really weren't meant to do any sort of convincing. Jonah did the bare minimum and nothing more. He barely walked into the city and said exactly what God asked him to say. On the boat with the sailors, he slept while the sailors worked in the storm, he stood while they prayed, he looked at them as they tried to row away from the storm, and finally he waited for them to throw him into the water. He didn't do much of anything for those sailors, but yet those sailors, too, had a dramatic conversion. Each one of them renounced their old pagan ways and accepted with vows and sacrifices the god of Jonah. Here, in Nineveh, Jonah hardly does anything too. He barely walks into the city, utters five words, and then converts an entire city, its kings, its noblemen, and its people, having them turn away from their old ways of violence and accept God, wholly and completely. In some ways, reading the book of Jonah makes you wonder why Jonah was involved at all. It seems like it would be easier for God to just speak those five words from a cloud over the people of Nineveh or maybe repeat what he did with Moses speaking through a burning bush. God could have easily have spoken those five words to the city of Nineveh without having Jonah take that trip. So what's the importance of Jonah delivering this message? Because he's not important to the stewardship of the people. After he delivers his message, the king and his nobles and the people themselves do it all on their own. In fact, this decree wasn't even really needed, because by the time that the king had heard the proclamation from Jonah, the people in Nineveh were already fasting. Our scripture says as much. The king's decree is just confirming from a governmental stance what the people were already doing. Jonah wasn't needed in this process at all. And likewise, the process itself was very fast. I think it's interesting that Jonah spent two chapters trying to run away from his mission, but we only have one chapter of him actually doing the mission itself. If this was a sermon and not a Bible study, I'd spend a lot of time on that point. But this does tell us something about the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book isn't to tell us about the conversion of the Ninevites, Because if that was the case, the book of Jonah would spend a lot more time telling us about the conversion itself. Instead, it's about the nature of Jonah and the nature of our lives. Jonah was successful in his preachings to the people of Nineveh, even though he did not want to preach to them. He tried to run, and even when he finally did what God called him to do, he barely put any effort in. But still, the people were completely and totally convinced and turned away from their sinful ways. God loved them and had compassion for them and saved them, because they, too, like Jonah, were his children. But you have to wonder, since Jonah spent all of this time trying to run from his mission because he did not want to see the people of Nineveh saved, what do you think he's going to do? now that they've found their salvation, now that they've repented totally and completely, how do you think it's going to affect Jonah's life and well-being? How will he take the enemy of Israel being saved by the God of Israel? We'll answer that question next week as we cover chapter 4 and finish our study on the book of Jonah. As always, thank you for joining me today, and remember to send any prayer requests or joys to bible.bourbon at gmail.com. Additionally, if you do drink, please do so responsibly. While it is true that Jesus drank wine, an occasional glass is different than an addiction. If you need help, please seek it. If you need help but don't know where to look, please reach out to me and I'll be happy to guide you. Blessings, everyone.